Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Tom, I always think July the 12th and 13th is kind of halfway through our summer. Um, and Indeed. it's noticeably noticeable <laughs> all the Northern Ireland visitors that come to Galway at this time. They used to come in much greater numbers when I was a lad working yeah. in my dad's shop. My father always said there must be something fundamentally wrong with the North of Ireland that half its population leave around the 12th. <laughs> Of July, but I know that's a long story. But um, anyway, it's lovely to hear their voices in town. I was in Clonbur uh, just over the weekend, and I heard their voices there as well. Uh, very distinctive Northern Ireland voice. People who are very welcome. Yeah. Anyway, so we're you know we're, the summer is marching on, Tom. Well, actually, what I am writing about this week is essentially uh, a major change that happened. Uh, at this time of year in 1949, and it was the changing face of Salt Hill, really. Nice. Um, I have a photograph this week of what you would call Salt Hill Village, <clears throat> and it is taken from the old RIC barracks. Now, for those who are not as old as me, are you, for that matter, uh, the RIC barracks was across the road from where the bonbon is today in Salt Hill. Right. From where the bonbon shop or the Grand Hotel were. The road was much narrower then, and uh, there were a couple of buildings uh, across the road. And so you are looking towards Seapoint and the village from there. Okay. And in the foreground of the photograph is, uh, you can see the top of what was known as the Lazy Wall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah. this was a, a I've, often heard that. I've often heard about it yeah yeah a most uncomfortable looking <laughs> concrete seat it was it was quite long it was under this wall mm -hmm. and there were a particular group of tourists that used to come to salt hill a little later than now uh, and they were known as the farmery right. and they were all agricultural people people who worked yeah. the land the farms and when their harvest was in, they would come on holiday to Salt Hill. They would book into lodging houses. They'd bring their own food, believe it or not. They would bring chickens and potatoes and vegetables yeah. and fruits and yeah. everything. And uh, they just loved the sea air. And this was a kind of a place where they congregated. And it's quite strange uh, they would meet the same people very often that they met last year, and friendships would be renewed. Lots of gossip and chat, and awesome. have you had any children since last year? All this kind of thing. <laughs> the uh, the women would often. What was in front of them was a storm beach. It's hard to imagine now. It's all a car park today, but that's what it was then. And uh, 
the women would often uh, walk down there, paddle in there, hitch up their skirts and kind of lower themselves into the sea. Uh, but the really significant and focal point of this week's photograph is the knocking down of Kremen's sea baths. Oh. Now, in common with all, nearly all, I suppose, <clears throat> seaside resorts in Ireland, water baths. Uh, you could have hot or cold baths, often uh, with a lot of seaweed mixed in. And people really genuinely believed that these had curative powers for arthritis or lumbago or other different ailments. Some of them would gargle the water. Some of them would even drink the water. Uh, but uh, I remember <clears throat> myself traveling with my relations from County Leitrim up to Strand Hill on a Sunday afternoon. And the first place they made for it were the seawater baths there. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So it was very much the same here. And Mrs. Kremen uh, had taken over uh, what was known as Seapoint House and a bathing business there that was owned by the Fallon family. And she ran the business and developed her two children came after her and they really developed it. They constructed new baths and bathing boxes. And uh, it, it was a kind of a health spa, really, of yeah. 100 years ago. Were these, baths, were these baths indoors, Tom, or outside? Both. There were both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there would have been a number of small hotels in Salt Hill that would have had their own uh, facilities for seawater and seaweed baths as well. Uh the premises had a freshness and cleanliness about them that of itself is invigorating. The attendance okay. is admirable and they're under very capable management. Oh, that's so nice. said one yeah. particular tourist. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's nice. 1944, yeah. uh, this complex, which was at that stage owned by the two uh, Kremen children, it was bought by Noel Finan. Right. Uh, Noel, he, he, God, he was a man of extraordinary vision when I think of it, really. He realized that young people coming to Salt Hill wanted more than just the invigorating salt air and to walk the prom and, and to get into the sea. Yeah. And so he bought this site and uh, from, well, he demolished the buildings that were there. And then he hired McNally's to build what we now know as Seapoint or Seapoint Ballroom, as it was then. Um, it took 13 months. It was 30 men. Noel Finan told me he he never saw a crane or a hoist or a lift. All he remembered about the actual uh, building was men pushing, mixing concrete and pushing barrows. Uh, a lot of scaffolding. Uh, what I remember vaguely, and this is vague now, is <clears throat> they had to be very careful, obviously, with the tide. So the critical uh, thing were to build the foundations first. And these were open. And I remember the workmen there roaring at local young kids who were paddling around uh, on planks and lumps of timber and so on. And, of course, these workmen had a lot more to do than just watch over the kids. But yeah, They built it anyway in, in the space of 13 months. And it was at this time of year on the 17th of July in 1949 oh, at the mayor yeah. opened it. Yeah. And I think Salt Hill would never be the same again. 
That's Gold Finan had really yeah. dragged um, yeah. Salt Hill into the 20th century. And uh, it was yeah. a building on the size and scale of which there was nothing like it in the West, really, at the time. Yeah. Uh, it had a huge, there was 5,200 square feet of a ballroom. There was a big restaurant on the ground floor, which was capable of taking about 350 people. And the ballroom took off. It really, it was a wonder. It changed Salt Hill forever, as I say. Initially, it was all big bands uh, that came. And, you know, people like Winifred Atwell and Vera Lynn and so on. And then, of course, along in the late 50s and 60s came the show bands. Uh, And so... And there were big nights there with groups like the Clancy Brothers. I remember there must have been about three and a half thousand people wedged into Seapoint for the Clancy Brothers, the Boomtown Rats, U2, Horselips, all these kinds of groups. But really, it was the show bands. It was the Capital Show Band, the Big Eight Show Band, Brendan Boyer, etc. That's what really kept Seapoint going. And of course, it was built. It, it was a much more luxurious uh, ballroom than anything around. I mean, we did have at the time, we had the Astaire ballroom and we had the hangar and they were wonderful, wonderful in their own way. But this suddenly was a level of luxury, a big balcony, for instance, uh, you know, that was unknown up to then. And when you think of it, countless marriages must have started in Countless. <laughs> I bet marriages. they did. I bet they did. Yeah, it yeah. ran. It closed in 1985, uh, mm. but it's still to this day. I, I yeah. often think of it as just a monument to the courage and the vision of uh, Noel. I, I, he was an extraordinary man and literally changed Salt Hill. Uh, so this is a photograph of what you might call the village of Salt Hill, which would. And those days have extended from the Baal to the Eglinton. <clears throat> and most of the village is in this. Now, yeah. you will have to be looking at the photograph, and certainly younger people will have to be looking at the photograph to understand what I mean. Like where the Storm Beach is, for instance. Uh, people can't conceive of it today. No. But uh, anyway, Good. that's what we have this week. And as I say, it was, whatever, 72 years ago, this yeah. week, really, that's well, open. Well, it's perfect that it sort of coincides with the summer season. I think it's hard for people to remember how big Salt Hill and Galway was for the summer holidays for thousands of people. And yeah. they came from all over Ireland. Uh, my mother used to get upset if the weather was wet and she'd say, oh, those poor girls and their new dresses and their hair is done and they're walking on the prom in the rain and the storms. But nevertheless, there was no Spanish holidays. There was no cheap Mediterranean holidays. It was no. Undoran, Galway, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah. I mean, they came in their thousands and they were all they very well behaved. I can vaguely remember remember as a boy uh, been up late one night I'm not quite sure what with my dad I think in Salt Hill and hearing the music from the Seapoint ballroom and yeah. uh, lots of people were just standing around on the prom listening to the music coming out of the windows of the Salt yeah. Oh yeah, ballroom, you know yeah. Yeah. it's still a very fine building in the sense that it it typifies 
you know, the 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 enjoyment people had from holidays and the wonderful uh, facilities that were provided in Galway for people to have a great time. And, um, you know, you're certainly right about, you know, people meeting. It was was very much a family resort at the time. Yes, it was. That's Although I often think that with the bishop and the corporation (coughs) having a men-only area for swimming and a ladies-only area. We're doing their very best to divide and split up families rather than uh, encourage them to come to Salty. I know, I know. It's it's pathetic now when you think about it, really. Yeah. But I'm glad you're doing that, Tom, because I say this time in July is kind of, you know, midway through the the holiday season. I think that's lovely. That's good, Tom. Thank you. Now, listen. So what's in the diary? Well, well, you'll be glad to hear that Claire Sheridan has finally come to Galway. (laughs) I had to bring her home. Uh, I could have gone on for weeks and weeks because I enjoyed it so much and found out quite a lot about her. But yes, indeed, she came home, but not before she had other adventures. Uh, don't forget, she, she was a remarkable woman in the sense that she provided for herself through her sculpture and her writing and her journalism. Her writing was really quite extensive. She wrote something like 16 books of her travel and her observations on her travels. And um, so she eked out a sufficient livelihood uh, she parked her daughter, Margaret, with relatives in America and kept her son, Dick, with her. And uh, she went back to Russia for a while, which was very frowned upon. And uh, indeed, the MI5 opened a file on her and they watched her. Don't forget, she had this kind of reputation that she was a Soviet spy. I don't know whether she was or not. I don't think anybody knows, but that was the reputation and the uh, MI5 kept an eye on her. And then she went back to America and then she went to Istanbul and North Africa. I'm very happy in North Africa. She bought a house near the Sahara Desert and uh, probably would have lived there, only tragically her son Dick died of a burst appendix, appendicitis. And, uh, you know, there was no proper medicine or no nothing really no. to help the poor lad. So that changed her life. And she was deeply, deeply wounded by his death. And she wrote to Anita Leslie, her cousin in Galway, saying, I feel Galway is calling me home. And uh, she came to Galway. She sent on all her uh, unfinished sculptures and in stone and in large slabs of oak uh, to Ornmore Castle, where poor Anita lived. And I'm sure Anita just put up with it all. And uh, before she came to Galway, she went back to Assisi uh, to become a Catholic. And she was converted there. She was disappointed because she prepared a lengthy first confession. She had a lot to say. And uh, she was looking forward, I think, to, you know, regaling her life and her sins. But the priest cut her short almost immediately. He said, my child, I understand it's a long story. And he gave her absolution just like that. She was quite disappointed. And when she would discuss in Galway and tell people the nuns in their convents and the monks in their Dominican colleges or in the Dominican uh, monastery down the Dominican Abbey in the Cleda and the Augustinians in their little church there in Middle Street, 
she would tell them, you know, really, I, I had such a lot of interesting things to tell the priest, but there you are. He just cut me short and I was baptized and here I am. And her phrase was, how exciting it is to be a Catholic. And um, I'm sure Catholics in Galway today regularly look in the mirror and say, my goodness, how exciting it is to be a Catholic. <laughs> so anyway, she came back That's and uh, she was very happy in Galway, as you know, she was friendly with your mum and she lived in Spanish Arch House and uh, she sculpted there. She was a bit disappointed. Some of her sculpture was not accepted for the new cathedral at the time, but it the Salt Hill Church accepted a very fine crucifix made out of oak. It's, it's a very, yeah. it's very strong, strong. Oh certainly. yeah, it's wonderful, very, isn't it? Very strong. <coughs> That's the only <coughs> piece of sculpture that I know of uh, here in Goy. But I do mention other ones that are mainly in the UK, of course, particularly busts of her first cousin Winston Churchill who, poor man, was, was put to the pin of his collar and trying to keep her out of trouble and trying to save his own reputation in a sense. Not, not that he need worry, his reputation was absolutely sound. So sadly, I'm leaving her in Spanish Arch House. Now, I just want to say one thing about the sources for this. That's one of the, the books I enjoyed most, of course, was um, uh, Anita Leslie who was yeah. a cousin of, of her. And her book is the uh, My Cousin Claire, The yeah. Tempestuous Career of Claire Sheridan. Now, Anita Leslie is really an extraordinary woman. And I'm sorry there isn't a biography of her. Maybe Leonie, her daughter, might tell me that there is, but I'm not sure. I mean, she was really a remarkable woman. She was previously married before she met Bill King. She... In the war, the last war, she joined the Free French Army and she drove ambulances and uh, saw quite a lot of action uh, following the armies through Europe from Normandy and eventually following them all the way to Berlin. Uh, she went into the Reich Chandlery, what was left of it, and wrote letters to her friends on the Reich Chandlery notepaper, which must be very impressive. But she did that as a half a lot. She had a great sense of humor and she adored mm -hmm. Cousin Claire. Uh, and she just found her absolutely wonderful. And a great source of information was her daughter, Margaret, who survives Claire. The other aspect of Anita Leslie, of course, is her husband, Commander Bill King. I have written about him before. I'm tempted to go back into him again. Uh, I've come across some new information. An extraordinary man, uh, a submarine commander, as you know, during the entire Second World War. The only submarine commander to survive, uh, the only British submarine commander to survive the whole war, as a commander of a submarine. All the others perished, sadly, but amazingly, he survived all the way through. And then we became a famous uh, uh, circumnavigator in a yacht he built, the Galway Blazer 1, Galway Blazer 2. He sailed off alone. Really, I understand from speaking to Leone some years ago, he did this to kind of try and get the years of in a submarine under extreme danger out of his system. And he challenged himself to circumnavigate the world. And he had tremendous mishaps there and adventures capsizing, rammed by a whale. Um, 
you know, really tough times, but he wrote about them and was, you know, acknowledged as one of the great solo sailors, really. He wrote some wonderful books. He did. The Stick stick and the Stars being... That's a lovely one. I have that, in fact. Superb book, yeah. Isn't it superb? So, really, it's a very interesting family, the Sheridans. (laughs) I have a great photograph of uh, Bill and Anita at the launch of My Cousin Claire, which was in uh, what was then the Galway City Museum, now known as Comerford House, uh, which, of course, is where Claire lived. Yes, Spanish Uh, Arch House, yes. yes. Yeah, but uh, I have a a lovely photograph of the two of them. Yeah, Yeah, they were extraordinary people. Weren't they just? I know. And then they lived out in uh, the Ormore Castle, an old Clan Ricard uh, fortress there at the head of the bay. Um, Now, Leone, their daughter, lives there now. She is the chatelaine of that interesting castle. Her late husband, lovely Alec Finn, built a a more comfortable uh, residence there. I think the castle was a bit wet, cold and leaky. Good for Bill King, though. He'd be well able for it. I don't know if Anita was. But anyway, they were a remarkable couple. And uh, as you say, she wrote a wonderful book about her cousin, Claire. So that's it, Tom. Claire Sheridan is home. She's working away down in the Spanish Arch house. And I'm going to leave her there and tiptoe away. And I'll start something else next week. So we'll see what happens. Look forward to that. I will too, Tom. I look forward to your photograph, as always. Tom, thank you very much. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.